Welcome to Community Forum. Today is January 9th, 2020, and my name is Priscilla Almquist Olson, your host, and I am so privileged and honored today to welcome one of, uh, another townie here from Easton, uh, Edward Leonard. And Ed uh, grew up in Easton, uh, but he has so many more stories to tell us. And we're going to have a two-part section. Today we will talk uh, about uh, two stories, and we will continue on another segment to uh, talk about three other stories. He is very well versed in Easton's history, and he's also doing research on the William Ladd family. So we don't want to uh, keep you on this show longer than you can um, tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to do two shows. So please tune in to the uh, second segment of this amazing and very interesting, and I can assure you, entertaining story. Ed, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I just heard that his mother was 100% Swedish. <laughs> And so am I. <laughs> anyway. That's another episode. Oh, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> the Swedish connection, there you go. we'll call it. All right. So tell me a little bit about, uh, I know that you said you were born in Brockton and in your very early years lived there in the Swedish section of Campello. But tell me, when did you come to Easton? Um, How I old were you? I, I was uh, six years old. I had just finished the first grade in Brockton. Uh, and then the family moved from Brockton Heights, which is now the Westgate Shopping Center. Oh, okay. I moved from there to uh, 17 Columbus Avenue, and we rented a house from Harry DeWitt. Oh. Uh, and I began school in the second grade with Miss O'Connor, who was my first second grade teacher. So. And tell me a little bit about your, your f pals growing up and the kinds of <coughs> activities that you were involved in, because our listening audience uh, has no idea of the freedom and independence mm. that we enjoyed back then. Yeah. Well, I just watched <coughs> your episode with uh, Wayne Lake and uh, uh, Alice, Kent. Alice Kent McCarthy. And uh, McCarthy, yes. And they were both classmates of my brother, graduated in 1948. Uh, and my background was taken off from there because I was born in 34. And then when we moved to Easton, it was the beginning of World War II. And uh, a lot of my activity was supporting the war effort. Uh, we had war bonds, we could get 10 cent stamps to you uh, make up an $18.50 booklet, and then you get a $25 wall bond. Um, I collected all kinds of metal and copper and everything from the woods in my neighborhood, just up the street in Columbus Avenue, which is now the campus of the high school. But back then, it was my playground. And uh, so <coughs> I spent a lot of time collecting that, that and milkweed pods for the life preservers. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <coughs> Yeah. And then my neighbors, uh, <coughs> we played out in the street. We played until dark, and then we went home. Parents never worried about us. <laughs> um, Did you ever go to Frothingham Park and play? 
I played a lot of tennis in Fotheringham Park. I was on the swings that they talked about, that merry-go-round, you remember? Oh, yeah. um, <coughs> but uh, I used to put my tennis balls in Mo Mason's backyard. He didn't like that <laughs> because I was traipsing through his, traipsing through his uh, garden. In other words, you lopped them to his backyard when you were playing well, tennis. Well, you'd miss a ball and, you know, right. up it go and down, bounce off the back of his house and back mm -hmm. into the garden. Now, Mo Mason, uh, Mo was his nickname. Yep. And, uh, but his first name was John. And he was, uh, he taught me civics uh, in high school. But he was best remembered, I think, as the director of athletics. Right. Uh, although I'm sure he was not very athletic himself. Mm. But maybe when he was younger. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and y what were some of the? Um, do you remember any sp special event that occurred growing up in high school, in well, junior high or high school with your pals? That what? Any any special events or activities that you did that you enjoyed with your pals? Yes. Yeah, so, when I <coughs> was in high school, I wasn't into athletics, and like Wayne Legg and uh, Alice Kent, we worked. And I spent a lot of my hours working and not playing baseball, football, whatever. So I wasn't a friend of Jack Mason's. <laughs> uh, and I had a, I inherited a car for a dollar from Harold Wheaton Hayward. You'll come in later in phase two of this discussion. Uh, 30 Chevrolet. And we spent a lot of time painting it. Did a motor job on it. And one of the uh, incidents that I remember very familiar was you could take the handle, I mean, the uh, steering wheel off of the car with one nut. And we would come down Baldwin Street, uh, uh, Barrow Street, and Harry had a wrench on the, on the shaft for the steering. And I had the steering wheel in my hand and we'd go by some girls walking home, and I'd hang the, the steering wheel out the window, <laughs> <laughs> and we'd go around the corner, because <laughs> Harry's steering for the wrench. <laughs> oh, that is funny. So there's a lot of stories like that. Yeah, and, yeah. and what year was that car? 1930 Chevrolet, and it was not an antique. No, right, 1931. Right, uh, Chevrolet. Yeah. My first car was a 1951 Chevrolet, and I wish I had that today. It was a great car. And it's um, the steering wheel was um, it was wood. Yep. And it was very shiny. It must have been shellacked. Yep. And I sold it for fifty dollars. Just think what I could have gotten for it today. <laughs> <laughs> I bought mine for a dollar from Harry because I promised <coughs> to help him paint his next car, which was a Ford Ford. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being in a very bad accident on Route 138. Andy Miller who was one of the superintendents of school in Easton, and his best friend, Dave Gomes, were in the back seat. And I got rear-ended, and I ended up with my head in Andy's lap in the back seat, and gasoline pouring out of the gas tank. Oh, my. And the guy hit me dead center with a 40 Chevy, and the ornament stuck and broke off into the back of my car. <coughs> I pulled over. The floorboards are wooden, and they flipped up. We survived it, um, luckily. How old were you? 16. Oh, my. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember because my dad was always afraid of me driving. 
he was in his automobile business all his life, and he knew a 16-year-old with his own car would get into trouble. <laughs> well, Cully Palm. Oh, sure. Yeah, he was an officer. Well, there were only two. Cully was one of them. And he uh, Back came, in to, the day, two came to the officers. accident, and I asked him if he would come home with me to explain what happened to my father, because my father <laughs> wouldn't believe me. <laughs> so well, I can remember standing on the front door of the house and walking in, and my father sitting in the living room, and he saw Officer Palm in his uniform. <laughs> oh, what did he do now? <laughs> Carl says, Marty, sit still. Nothing happened. Everything's okay, and it's not your, your son's fault. So anyway, the car was total. I ended up driving it to college my freshman year at Northeastern. And, uh, but I couldn't afford to keep it, and my dad said, get that junk out of the yard. So I sold it to a fellow by the name of Ray Ladd. Uh -huh. I don't know that he was related to the lads we're going to be talking about, yeah. but I think he was the son of Wendell Ladd that had the gas station down in Wintivia. Yes, Wendell. And, you know, I, when I thought back about Bill Ladd, and uh, I, I confused him with Wendell Ladd mm. because I thought Bill Ladd owned the gas station at Daly's Corner, and that's not the case. It no. was Wendell. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's get back to um, uh, your you're 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 in the six you're sixteen seventeen, and well, I started off fourteen working at the library. Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah, that's what I'd like to start with because sure. um, I was still riding a bicycle, but somehow I ended up with a job as taking care of the outside of the Ames Free Library, uh, mowing the lawn, picking the leaves, and shoveling snow. Uh, Irene Smith, I think, was the librarian following Miss Lamprey. Um, I changed a few light bulbs. And I can remember David Ames coming in a little brown uh -huh. envelope with the correct money for my week's wages. <laughs> One of the things that he did uh, also was take me to the Cuisset House next door and back oh, yeah. after a very big snowstorm. And he walked me up through the front door, up the stairs, through a bedroom out through a window onto the front porch, shovel the snow off the roof. <laughs> wow. So anyway, I remember David as being a very businesslike mm. person. Nice, very nice. But he was always dressed in a, in a suit and tie, and it was Mr. Ames to me. Mm. So I enjoyed working there at the, in the library, and it, from there I ended up going over to work for Bill Ladd at the hardware store when I was 16, and now I had my license and a car. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into this story of Bill Ladd and then ultimately his, his father. Now, how did you get that job at the Ladd hardware store? I would like to think that David Ames put a good word in for me with uh -huh. Bill Ladd. Mm -hmm. Bill moved into town with his wife, Betsy. Oh, by the way, did you know her maiden name? Uh, Cofill. No, Ross. She oh, was Ross. She was Elizabeth Ross from Sharon. Oh. I.E. Betsy Ross? Yeah. <laughs> but any rela no relation? Betsy Ross? Was she related to Betsy Ross? No, but she was called Betsy, Betsy Ross. Betsy Ross, right. <laughs> <laughs> and she had a daughter, Betsy Ross, which I understand you used to babysit. That's right. I used to babysit Betsy, the daughter of Bill Ladd yeah. and Betsy Ladd. Yeah. yeah. So and anyway, and I... And they live in the... 
the uh, Canary Yellow House um, on Main Street, um, if you're coming from Maine going down to Daly's Corner, it's on the right-hand side, uh, sort of diagonally across from Fred's Pond. Right. And it's Langwater a Pond. It's a wonderfully old, uh, it has a honeybee oven in it, and I was just so fascinated by it. I was, a, I was probably 12 or 13 when I babysat. That's in the last part of my story. Oh, good. The history of the Canary House. Oh, okay, great. Mm -hmm. So, so um, but tell us a little bit about Bill's dad, Dr. William Ladd. Well, <coughs> first of all, I'd like to talk about working for Bill Ladd sure. at the hardware store. And in the, in the conversation over three years working for him, he mentioned that his father was a doctor in Boston, but it didn't mean anything to me. The thing that amazed me was how agile Bill Ladd was. And he was a graduate with David Ames from Milton Academy in high school. He was a graduate of Harvard School, Harvard University with David Ames. So they were good friends way back. And he moved into town in 1950, 1949. I think it was 1949, yeah, 1949. And that's when I went to work for him. So he had just bought this hardware store, but it wasn't just a hardware store, that was the front half. The back half was a fix-it shop, if you would. And they had an operating forge left over from the carriage works. Uh, we did ornamental iron work. I operated the forge. When you uh, want to sharpen a pickaxe or, or a, uh, uh, any other large tool, like a crowbar, you didn't grind it sharp. You put it into the forge, you heat it up white hot, put it on the anvil and pound it into a sharp point, and then quench it in the water. And so Bill was teaching me all of this stuff, but I was really hired to sharpen lawnmowers. And back in those days, there were no rotary mowers. They were all reel type. Mm -hmm. You had a rotating reel and a bed knife. <coughs> and so he taught me how to sharpen using that equipment. He taught me how to use the forge he taught me how to bend iron and thread. We threaded pipe and all. One of the things we made was a uh, heavy iron uh, semicircle of steel bar, which was like eight inches wide, a half inch thick, four feet long, and we had to bend it into a semicircle for Belcher Malleable Foundry. Because when they made their castings, they had to grind off the bosses that stuck out, mm. and they would put it up to a grindstone in the, the uh, the uh, uh, stuff that would be ground off mm -hmm. would hit that shield and they would wear out. So he'd get an order for a half a dozen of those. Mm -hmm. We'd put an arc on the wooden floor with a, with a uh, chalk and then we'd grind it through rollers to bend it. It'd take a half a day to bend one of them, <laughs> never mind a half a dozen of them. But anyway, Bill taught me all of that. And I'm thinking about that. Bill went to Harvard, and they didn't have an engineering school that I know of. He must have had a business degree, and David Ames had a business degree. They were classmates. So he comes into Easton in 1949. He rents the house from an Ames, the Canary House. He buys this hardware store, and he's teaching me how to do all this mechanical stuff. I'm saying, how did he ever do that? And David Ames certainly didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so anyway, it, it always amazed me that he, he did that. But my wife gave me this book. 
the great Halifax explosion. And on page 567, <coughs> there's an article about David, about uh, William Ladd Sr., Dr. William Ladd. And I'm, I'm reading that, and I'm thinking about working for Bill Ladd here. I said, that must be his father. So I looked into that, and sure enough, it was. So part of my story continues from working on the hardware store mm -hmm. to looking into his, his uh, participation. This is his father here. That's William Ladd, Dr. William Ladd. And how did uh, Bill get involved with all of this? Mm. So anyway, I'll, I'll talk about that later. But. Um, there was a lot of a lot of fun working there. That was a big part of my life for three years working for Bill Ladd. And um, so you talk about um, the carriage shop, yep. which you call, you know, and uh, it's amazing because if if he were, I mean, he was educated at Milton Academy and Harvard. Certainly, no places where vocational skills that you describe are taught. So he must have probably just studied it, or maybe he, he went and uh, viewed um, places which use this t uh, technology and so forth. I would like to know the answer to that, and I would like to talk to uh, Fred Ames, the mm -hmm. son of David Ames, mm -hmm. because Fred Ames was a good friend of one of Dave, Bill Ladd's children, oh. James. Mm -hmm. They grew up together, and, and Fred told me that he palled around with James Ames for quite a bit. As James young. Ladd. Did he? You mean James Ladd? Yes. Yeah. Is he still alive? I'm sorry? Is James Ladd still living? I don't know. Okay. And uh, mm -hmm. Fred Ames would know that. Yeah. But I haven't had a chance to okay. sit down, and I want to do that mm -hmm. because I'd like to know that sure. in, in, uh, interaction. And he would have known perhaps what the background of Bill Ladd's was before mm -hmm. he came to Easton. Mm -hmm. Second story. All right, second story coming up. Okay. Um, the Great Halifax Explosion, which highlighted the activity of the participation of Dr. Ladd, uh, sparked my interest because um, nobody seems to remember anything about the Great Halifax Explosion. But one of the things that we all know is that Boston gets a Christmas tree every year from Halifax, Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. thanking the participation of Boston people in recovering from that explosion. So um, to bring people up to date on that explosion, there were two ships in Halifax Harbor, which is very protected. It's like a couple of miles in from the, the ocean. Mm -hmm. And during World War One, ships would go in there and get supplies and drop off soldiers and pick up soldiers. There's quite a bit of commerce going on there. Uh, Halifax was a rapidly expanding city. Um, so this munition ship up from New York, loaded with TNT, was late in coming into the Narrows into Halifax Harbor. At the same time, there was a, a uh, that was the Mont Blanc uh, there was the Emo, which was a Norwegian ship, cargo ship, wanting to leave the harbor. But because of the lateness of the day, 
they had dropped the chains across the channel to prevent German submarines from entering the harbor. Mm. So here's this munition ship outside the harbor, this cargo ship inside the harbor, both wanting to enter the harbor. So in the morning when they lifted the chains, in goes the munition ship, out comes the cargo ship. And the cargo ship wasn't obeying all of the navigation rules, and it was cutting across channels. And the Mont Blanc and the Emo collided. And there was a resulting fire, and the um, Emo was uh, incapacitated. And the munition ship, Mont Blanc, drifted up to the uh, dock at Halifax. And the fire that started ended up being an explosion. And it had megatons of TNT mm. on board. When that thing exploded, in a matter of seconds, it totally wiped out the city of Halifax, all the way up the hill. People couldn't find their home. They didn't know where their house was because it was leveled just like the pictures we've seen of the atomic bombs, mm. Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And when they, you hear about the explosion in Japan of those two atomic bombs, they relate to the Halifax explosion as being the basis for that. It's unbelievable. The Mont Blanc was blown across in a 32-foot high tsunami wave across the harbor up onto the shore of the other city of Dartmouth. Also, that tsunami wiped out Richmond, which was the next city up above Halifax, and it wiped that out. And that was a big rail center. It was just unbelievable. Mm. There was, how many did I say? There was 11,000 casualties, 2,000 died, and 25,000 people made homeless in a matter of seconds. Mm. Well, when you look into Dr. William Ladd, they uh, responded, and I'd like to read from the book what that is, because it says it better than I can say it. One of the first Boston doctors to arrive in Halifax after the blast, Dr. William Ladd headed a Boston Red Cross contingent of 22 doctors, 69 nurses, 14 civilians, plus enough equipment and supplies to set up a temporary 560-bed hospital at St. Mary's College. They stayed for almost a month, not leaving until January 5th, 1918. Before they did, the views of the Red Cross on disaster relief and Dr. Ladd's medicine had changed significantly. The Red Cross decided to specialize in disaster uh, response while Dr. Ladd's experience working with burned children in Halifax sparked insight into pediatric surgery. <clears throat> Upon Dr. Ladd's return to Boston, the Boston Children's Hospital designated two bids for his practice. From this modest beginning, Dr. Ladd built North America's preeminent pediatric surgery ward. Dr. Ladd's pioneering work is credited with developing pediatric surgery as a separate discipline in the Western Hemisphere. The Great Halifax Explosion set in motion ripples 
we still feel today, including advances in international relations. While the disaster of the American response to it created a formal policy between the two nations, any talk of American annexing Canada stopped after that. So the United States was going to take over Canada before that explosion. Wow. But after that explosion, there, a friendship developed, mm. which exists today. Mm. So it's not just Fox, uh, Eastern, it's not just Boston, it's international. Right. In 1924, Canada's legislature decided the nation should stop driving on the left side of the street just because the British did the same thing. <laughs> Helped promise, promote trade and tourism with the Americans. So I, I, I think that's significant. It really that's is. What I wanted to be able mm. to mm. let pe pe people become aware of that. It's well, Dr. William Ladd was a giant and, and a pioneer. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, most of the pioneering work he did emanated from this horrible event, exactly. this terrible explosion. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and he was Bill Ladd's dad. Right. So it's uh, his legacy. Right. Well, thank you so much, Ed. Yeah, well, I. This is so interesting. Yeah. And the name of the book is. The Great Halifax Explosion. A World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. By John U. Bacon. John U. Bacon. Bacon. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that looks like incredible That should reading. be in everybody's library. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure it's at the Ames Free Library. I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah. It should be. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ed, so much. Oh. And I know we'll be continuing with another segment. So I want to thank the uh, listening audience for your attention and enjoyment, I'm sure, <laughs> of this wonderful uh, storyteller, Ed Leonard, who's joined us today. Thank you for watching. Be well. Welcome to Community Forum. My name is Priscilla Almquist Olson, your host, and this is the second segment of a continuing story uh, told by Eastern resident Edward Leonard. And I am delighted to see you again, Edward. Oh. I'm c I call you Ed. Okay. And he had uh, wonderful stories. And uh, the two previous ones told about his growing up in Easton uh, and working for David Ames and, and in Bill Ladd's store and the great explosion that happened in Halifax uh, and the uh, Boston uh, team, which uh, came, uh, medical team, that was headed by Dr. William Ladd uh, that went to help the, the 11,000 injured, 2,000 died in this horrible explosion during World War I uh, in the Halifax Harbor. And um, so we're continuing this uh, story and we're going to start with um, the Wheaton family, I believe. No, nope. I'm going to talk about Lad's Hardware Store, the history of the oh, store. Oh, sorry. That's the, the third of my five stories. Okay. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> and it's just a bunch of dates, but I got interested in the, the store itself. Where did it come from? I had heard that it, it was a carriage shop, and the forge that was in back was part of that manufacturing process back in the early 1900s. So in looking into it, uh, Frank Menino 
gave me a Frank piece. Frank is the curator at the Historical Society and Museum. And first of all, can you tell us the location of this hardware store? 110 Center Street between Columbus Avenue and Spooner Street, but on the other side. Oh, okay. And that's what it looks like. <laughs> right, and that is uh, where the um, not just tabbouleh is. Who? That's that's the soup. Oh, to today it is. Yes. It used to be the soup center, yeah. soup center, and now yeah. it's. Uh, Emco had it for a uh, yes. deli for a while. That was David Gomes. He was a classmate. Oh yeah. 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 Now I remember it as a hardware store. Okay. Yeah. But that was the front half. The back half was also part of the leftover from the carriage shop. And explain what a carriage shop is. It's, it's C-A-R-R-I-D-G-E. Probably, I can't spell. Oh, it w <laughs> is it like a carriage with horses? Yes. Oh, then it's C-A-R-R-I-A-G-E. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You've misspelled it. <laughs> That's okay. There were two subjects that I was not very good in. One was music and one was spelling. <coughs> well, you're a scientist. Oh, I'm a mechanical engineer. Mechanical engineer, and I like right. to work so with my hands. And uh, back to school. In school, uh, I, I read, I think, one book twice and maybe a second book in high school that I did book reports on. Mm -hmm. One was... Um, you can remember? Yeah, it was... Uh, what's his name? A kid's name at the circus. And it was a kid's book that I read, and I wrote a book report on it for Miss Foster. <laughs> Miss Foster? Can you imagine Miss Foster reading a book about Willy Wonka or whatever his name was at the, at the, at the, in the circus? The book was about this thick. <laughs> you mean this thin? Yeah, this, yeah, well, that thin, yeah. I remember Miss Foster. But um, I she was my senior year English teacher. She was a wonderful teacher. She was one of my best teachers. She and uh, Catherine Healy were my two best teachers. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, continue. I wanted to look more into the history of that building. Okay. And I did. And that I went to Frank Menino asking him about it. And he goes into his computer in his office at the museum. And he types in and he comes out with this, which is a wonderful background of that, that store. But so, so if one wanted to read it, you could simply go to the Historical Society's... Uh, Actually, you can go into uh, Google yeah. and type in Lad's Hardware Store and come up with it. Okay, Lad's Hardware Store, Easton, Mass. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, it all started with a Wheaton family up in New Brunswick in 1775. Uh, well, actually before that. The Wheaton family came from Europe and landed in Salem, Mass. And in 1774, there was a lot of noise going on when they landed. Mm. So they turned around and hightailed it out of there. Because <laughs> in 1774, the Battle of Lexington and Concord was going on. Mm. And they didn't want to hang around for that. So they went up to Halifax. And then from there, they ended up going over to New Brunswick. And the Wheaton family, um, had actually in 1832 they had 11 children. Thomas had 11 children. And he was a wheelwright. And he, he left uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, 
and came to Easton and opened the William A. Wheaton carriage factory at 110 Center Street. My and my. if you go to that building today, right here on the entrance is a plaque that Mr. Pyres, who owns the building now, put up. Okay, let's, let's show that for the camera. Yeah. Okay, see that? <laughs> and most of us know that it's the um, store um, called... It's a food store. Food right? store, I mean, yeah. It's a takeout. Not just Tiboli. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we all know where that's located yeah, right. on Center Street. <clears throat> so with his uh, 10 kids, he came down and he opened that up. Uh, he married a uh, gal. Uh, one, one of his daughters married a Edward Belcher Haywood. Oh. Belcher. This is, this is the name Belcher. Right. And uh, ended up that the Haywoods financed him in, in that. So I think, I think, and I, I don't have any documentation, I think he built that building. I think that Wheaton built this building mm -hmm. in 18... 84. The records, they say it was there, but they didn't say where it came from. Mm -hmm. And I think the Haywoods, who had money and invested in real estate, helped finance that, because I know they held a mortgage on it. Mm -hmm. Now, her husband um, was uh, Edward Belcher Haywood, so it must have been one of the Belchers. He must have been related to the Belcher foundry. I would think so, but that would take Malleable more research. Malleable iron foundry. Yeah, right. I would, ha I would like to think so, but I, that would take more research. But anyway, um, in 1890, his son Chase partnered with William Wheaton. His father. It, his father. And in 1900, the factory went in default, and the building was sold to Isabor, Isidore Coffin. And these people that owned it from then on were all blacksmiths and into mm -hmm. making carriages. This factory was sold in 1907 to a ransom packet. In 1912, it was sold to Susie Smith, whose husband was a blacksmith. In 1923, it was sold to Bob Watt. Now, I remember Bob Watt. Do you? When I lived on Columbus Avenue, because he lived right at the end of Columbus Avenue. Right. And Bob Watt was a blacksmith. So they were, they were operating a blacksmith shop in the back of the hardware store mm -hmm. back in the 20s. And then in 1949, our friend Bill Ladd shows up in the Canary House, renting it from the Ameses, and he bought the store. 1949 was the year that I started working for Bill Ladd. Oh. So <coughs> he needed some part-time help. There. And he also hired a gal by the name of uh, Pat Lemish from high school. She graduated in 51. And she was kept the books and was a clerk when people came into the hardware store. Was she the older sister of Ed Lemish? Yes. Hmm. So anyway, Pat and I worked together running the store. And, mm -hmm. and Bill was, I mean, he was the most energetic guy you could ever see. He oh, was always moving. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, I, I remember him so well. He was very slender. Yep. And very energetic. Yep. He had so much energy, yeah. In fact, after I was there for a year or two, he went on vacation for a week, and he left the store with Pat and I to run it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he had a pickup truck, and I get to drive his pickup truck. I remember that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so didn't, I did wasn't all. Wasn't it part wood? Hmm? Wasn't the pickup part wood? I don't know if the bed of it was. The bed was wood, yeah. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember mm. the details. But I know I drove it that week when he was away <laughs> on vacation. <coughs> so uh, I'd like to think that I got my job working there because of David Ames. Right. And I, until I went to college in 1950, uh, the fall of 52, uh, I worked for Bill, and I worked there for the, another year because at, as a co-op at Northeastern University, uh, you had to work, go to school full-time uh, and not co-op. So I had time to work for Bill on weekends and whatever. But then as I went to work for the Foxborough Company full-time as a co-op student, I no longer worked for Bill. And I often wondered what happened because Bill sold the property in 1966. And it had, it went through many, many hands after that to the people that you know today that operate a dolly out of there. Mm -hmm. But at one time, David uh, Gomes, a classmate of mine, owned and operated that same store. So it's got quite a, quite a history. Mm. <coughs> and. Uh, yeah, and the fact that um, they were building the wheels for carriages yep. in the back, the blacksmith, all those years, yeah. One thing, to build a wooden wheel, spoked wheel. Oh, okay. Right, there were wooden spoked wheels. It has a steel rim on it. Steel rim, right. So how do you take a piece of steel rim and put it on a, a wooden wheel? Yeah. You heat it up in the forge. I see. You get it red hot, white hot. And of course, the wooden wheel without the rim is kind of loose and, you know. And you put it down flat on the ground, and then a two or three people with tongs would lift this very hot rim and very carefully drop it over the wheel and then cool it down. And of course, the metal would shrink, mm. and that would become the rim of the wheel. So and then it would attach itself right. to the other end, yeah. Right. Mm. So Great. that's what they did. <laughs> wow. So what's the next story? Well, <coughs> from then, the Wheatons, uh, I have a lot of classmates that are involved with this. I mentioned Dave Gomes. Uh, Harold Bailey and myself are good friends today. And my closest friend since the freshman year in high school was Harold Wheaton Hayward mm. from Southeastern. So we've been friends for 71 years, and we still weekly correspond and visit each other. Wonderful. Uh, but his name was Wheaton. And I have his family genealogy, and it goes back to this William Wheaton that built that hardware store. <laughs> and they, that uh, took refuge in Halifax and yeah. during uh, so the, the American Revolution, and then came down back here yeah. to Easton. Hal Bailey said, Ed, while you're working on this, I've been told that I'm related to Harry Hayward, Harold Wheaton Hayward. If you find out how, let me know. Well, if you look at the documentation that I received, it tells me. From Frank Menino, yeah, right. right. Mm. And they had 10 children when they moved into Easton in 1888, 1884. The second child turned out to be 
Harold's Bailey, no, uh, Wheaton Haywood's grandmother. And the ninth child, I believe it was, turned out to be Harold Bailey's grandmother. My. <laughs> so they are second cousins. Hmm. Their grandmothers were sisters. And did they know this? No. And you discovered it? Well, I highlighted it, yeah. I mean, Wheaton Haywood had the information, but he never paid any attention to it. Mm -hmm. I got his genealogy for the, his family, the Haywood family, and I got this from Frank Menino. We put it together, and these two sisters, <coughs> so the, the, um, the uh, son of one of the sisters was Arthur Bailey, and the son of the other sister was Harold Wheaton Haywood Sr. And Hal Bailey was the son of Arthur, and Harold Jr. was the son of Harold Sr. Right. So they're second cousins, they're, their uh, parents were first cousins, and their grandparents' grandmothers were sisters. How does, how does one escape that information? Hmm? When their parents were first cousins, how, how does that, how does that not filter down? I mean, I know my second cousins. Don't Me you? too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Strange. But there was some difference in age. If you take ten yes. kids, you right. go from the second to the ninth. There's a lot of years in between. Right. And that makes a difference. Sure. When you have cousins same age, kind of, you kind of mm -hmm. get together with them. But when there's ten years difference. You're probably right. more separated. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, an interesting experience to go through that. Now, you mentioned that um, Arthur, Harold's father, was the Eastern Fire Chief. Yes. I see that in your outline here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Another classmate was Joan Kelly. Her father, Joe, was the Assistant Fire Chief. And one of the stories that Hal likes to tell was when the St. Mary's Hall of the Catholic Church yes. on Main Street burned down. I remember that. Well, so do I. Mm. I took a picture of it the day after. I was in the theater on Center Street. When I came out of the movies, the fire was going on, so I went down and watched it burn down. Wow. The next day, I had a little baby brownie camera, and mm -hmm. I went down there, <laughs> and I took a picture of the burnt out building, and that appears in that reminiscences. Good. The picture of that is in there. Mm. <coughs> but Hal likes to tell and the story. And to the listening audience, the reminiscences uh, is a series of ten, uh, ten uh, books, booklets now, of different stories written about Easton's past by uh, residents, uh, some who have moved away, and some who are still residing in Easton. Right. And you have, and which number is your story in? Uh, I wrote a story in the reminiscences number five. Number five. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Growing up on Columbus Avenue. Yeah. <coughs> and I want to write this up and give it to Hazel Loop so it can go into one of the future reminiscences. It's so funny, he, he, Ed calls her Hazel Luke because I did too. She was Miss Luke, um, and I, I was one of her students. Oh, yeah? Is that right? Sure. Oh. And, um, then she married fellow Dave. teacher uh, who became Dave the Varela. principal of the high school, Dave Varela. Yeah. So most people today know her as Hazel Varela. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's so funny that you called her Hazel Luke. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to fix Dave Roller's bike for him. Oh yeah. When I was growing up, I had, I probably paid in ten bikes, in my basement, <laughs> and one was that I fixed was Dave Roller because he wasn't that mechanical. Hmm. And when the chain would come off his bike, I'd have to put the chain back on. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk with the bike store? Have you been to the bike shop here in Easton? No. It's right next to the um, uh, Shoveltown Brewery. Uh, on um, right here, right here on the other side of this yeah. building. Yeah, yeah. There's a bike shop. It's a bike yeah. shop, and the the fellow is. Um, uh, I interviewed him. It's very interesting. Uh, How long has he been in business? Uh, I think maybe it's going on three years now. Oh, okay. And uh, but he he also apprenticed at a bike shop, but it's not his full time job. Although he would like it to be. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. bikes. Bikes have kind of gone by the wayside. No, no, bikes no? are in. Are they? Oh, bikes are really in. Yeah, everybody's biking. You know, it's the the age of staying really. fit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when in in your day, it was a means of transportation for anyone right. who didn't uh, own a car or wasn't old enough to own one. Right. Mm. I can remember when I was 15 and I didn't have my license. Uh, George Peterson. Another very close friend, he's since passed away. He and I would ride our bikes down to Harold Wheaton Haywood's home on Foundry Street because his next door neighbor, <coughs> Rick Hollis, had a Model A Ford out in the field. And we'd ride our bikes down there and then learn to drive a Model A Ford and would take it down through the woods out onto the railroad tracks, <coughs> down the railroad tracks to the Rainham dog track. And back. <laughs> Did you bet on the? Uh, no, we didn't go. No. We just used the railroad track as a road to drive the truck, uh, right. drive the car. Mm -hmm. That was kind of fun. So anyway, um, from there I got into the Wheaton family, and I mentioned Harold Bailey asked me how they were related, and I've just outlined that to you. So. Okay, and uh, are we going to do the fifth story? We can. Let's do it. Okay. <coughs> uh, Bill Ladd lived in the Canary House. I didn't even know they had a Canary House until Frank Menino gave me, where is it? Karen, do you want mine? Yeah. I have a, I have a picture of it. <laughs> I've misplaced it. Maybe it's here. Yeah, here it is. Frank Nino gave me this when he gave me the story of the, the hardware store. He gave me the story of the crime of the Canary, Canary Cottage. House. He called Canary it. Cottage. Yes, and that's kind of interesting because. That goes back, the record says that it was built circa, is that the word? Circa mm -hmm. 1800. Mm -hmm. And I looked into it. I think it was built back in the earlier 1700s. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it had a honeybee oven. Honeybee oven, a brick oven, if mm -hmm. you would. Because <coughs> my ancestors left Little London, and that is an ancestor from Taunton. Right. 
the Atlantids were into the iron forge business in Taunton, Rainham, Easton, Norton. And Lufflet's father, James, came to this area. This is before Easton was incorporated, mm. 1723. And they saw bog iron deposits. The hoe shop, the shovel shop, Langwater Pond, which before that was Fred's Pond, it was called Stone's Pond before that. They bogged iron there. And it's interesting that when you make iron back in those days, it had to cook for weeks on end. And they had to keep the fire going to reduce this wet, soggy stuff into depositing iron, you know, 24-7. So they cut all the trees down to build the fire. <laughs> People don't know it, but about 80% of New England was denuded of trees because of stuff like that. Mm. And Easton lost its trees because they were building fires to operate these forges. Really? Really. Oh, my. And if you, I look at the maps of Easton, and there's not a good map before Easton was incorporated. Mm -hmm. But it does show Stone's Pond, and it does show a house next to the pond because that was the red factory there. And Lufflet Leonard and James Leonard created that red factory. And I have it. Um, and what year was that? 1723. <coughs> so Easton was incorporated two years later in 1725. Right. So. That's, that's really early. And there was no Main Street in Easton. There was mm -hmm. no Ames Shovel Works. Mm -hmm. that what we think of as Northeastern didn't even exist. The whole activity in Easton was at the end of Stone's Pond and a waterfall and a forge. Mm -hmm. And it was before Oliver Ames showed up. Yes. He didn't show up until 1805. Right. Or th yeah, that, now, that period. Uh, so, um, you John Ames. Uh, just a sec. You're related to Geraldine Leonard. I don't know. Geraldine Leonard Wallace. I don't know. Married to Ray Wallace. I don't yes, know. you are. Oh, I have to get them <coughs> together. All the Leonards <laughs> are related. Uh, can I tell you a story about the Leonards? Sure. They're credited with creating the first successful iron works in the United States. The first one, which is the Saugus Iron Works up in Saugus, Mass., and that's a historic site today and a museum. But they ran out of raw material, and two Leonard brothers, uh, James and Thomas, worked there. They were brought over by Governor Winthrop to help establish the iron industry because they were making iron in, in Wales, Pontypool, Pool, Wales. When they ran out of material, the Leonard brothers went to Braintree and there was a forge there and they worked there and they were getting ready to go back to Wales and the farmers down in Taunton, which was the area of Rainham today, found iron ore. And the Leonard brothers went down in 1655 and started a forge. You mean 1755? 1655. 16? 1655. Oh my goodness. <coughs> James Leonard was good friends with Massasoit until he died. He was good friends with King Alexander, and then he died a year later. And then King Philip, he was good friends with the Leonards that had that forge. Because the Leonards were making iron, and they were making utensils. And they were able to trade off some of their product with the Indians, and they, they became friends. They used okay. to go hunting and fishing together. Oh. 
when the King Philip War started, King Philip is quoted in the history books, do not scalp the head of a Leonard. Now, as we know, a lot of towns around were burnt down during that King Philip War. Right. They left Taunton alone. And so the Leonards raised a lot of kids. <laughs> they, they weren't done in by the Indians. So the woods are full of Leonards because of their friendship with Massasoit. John Adams is quoted in the history books as wherever you find an iron forge, you will find a Leonard. And this James Leonard was the grandson, I think, of the original James, came into Easton in, 16, in 1723 with a Lefflet, his son, who was then 21 years old, and bought that land and started that forge. And if you look at the maps, there's nothing around there. There's, there's no road or anything. It was just a cart path somewhere that got into that area. But there was a house there. And in it, it says, 1782, Alephala Leonard deeded to son Jacob. Who, oh, that's, yeah, before to that. son Isaac. Oh, son Jacob, yeah. Uh, the house built, maybe 1720. Next to the Red Factory, Leonard Forge, 1723 to 1782 existed. Foot of Stones Pond, Fred's then Langwater Pond. First iron forge in Easton, called the Burlington Forge, established by James and given to his son Alephla at age 21. Mm. And all of Rames hadn't showed up in Easton yet. No. His son John, his father John came over and they ended up taking over that land and they also took over some land and had a forge on uh, the shovel shop pond. Mm -hmm. And that's how the shovel shop got started. Mm. The uh, John Ames was a blacksmith in West Bridgewater, Bridgewater. Yes. <coughs> in those days, a blacksmith could make a shovel. He could hardly lift it, and he made them one at a time. What the, the Ameses did was automate and mass produce it, just like Henry Ford mass produced the car, the Ameses started mass producing shovels. And the assembly line started with the Ameses, not with Mr. Ford, who came 50 years later. Yeah, right. So uh, although Ford is credited with the assembly line, not true. He got that idea from John Ames. Well, I hadn't heard that, but I, I believe it to be I true. I believe that's true, yeah. yeah. And, but this is so fascinating to think that a couple hundred years before uh, uh, Mr. Ames came to Easton in 1803 or 5, right, right. that your f ancestor, Mr. Leonard, was here with all his kids from Taunton and established that forge on Fred's Pond. And you said there was a house. Yes. Uh, and I, I, where I, is that house? It, I believe it's the Canary House. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I, I don't know it, but you know, it says it, they don't give the date of the house. They just mm -hmm. said 1800, mm -hmm. which says it's plus or minus. They mm -hmm. don't know when it was built, but here it says I, I don't see it right here. Anyway, it's, he deeded over his property, including a house, to 
to his son Lefflet. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the map, there's a house next to that forge. And Easton didn't exist. I mean, it mm -hmm. wasn't incorporated yet. But there was a house there. And, and then the house was actually across the street from the forge. Right. <coughs> but well, you could throw a stone and hit <coughs> the forge from that house. But was that house in that proper position on the map you viewed? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that takes care of that. Well, no, it doesn't. Because, you know, a historian would find all kinds of... But yet, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm. Also, <coughs> a lefflet went on to make steel. You know Marshall's Corner on the corner of Elm Street and 138? Yes. You go through Elm Street Extension to a Brockton. Mm -hmm. Down there, he had a forge, and he made steel. So that's down near Monty's Ice? Exactly. Pond. Exactly. I went by there today. And there's no mention on the plaque about the steel making there. It has Monty's Ice House and how many tons of ice up until 1955 or something they mm -hmm. made ice. But that's where Lovell Leonard was making muskets in 1776. I have <coughs> an article from Gun Collector's News. It said, you know, there was a rubbing off the barrel. It says E. Leonard, Easton, 1776. Oh, my goodness. That rifle was handing on the wall at Fort Ticonderoga when they wrote that article. I've given that article to Frank McMahon. It's in his... Well, I think <coughs> you ought to talk with Frank about getting another plaque <laughs> next to the Monty Ice I would like to do that, ball. right. <laughs> but anyway, there's a lot of history there, and it's hard to dig it out. And I get confused, and I'm... So he was I'm dyslexic, so I have trouble keeping <laughs> reading. I was going to ask you that because you said you um, didn't read a lot of books and all. Right. Um, but it's so interesting because um, my significant other, Warren Nyland, he also studied at Northeastern. He went to Wentworth, studied architecture, mm -hmm. and then studied mm -hmm. engineering at Northeastern. And he was he found out quite late in life that he was dyslexic, and that's the reason. Uh, he, he had problems breathing, and, but he was a marvelous engineer and um, worked for Honeywell and then started his own business, uh, had the, the, uh, everything south of Boston, and was very successful, um, and he was an electrical engineer. So uh, I understand. I sit and read two pages in a book and I fall asleep. Yeah. But now today there are, uh, I understand, methods uh, you, can, you can train yourself to uh, overcome that. But what's interesting about dyslexia is that people who have it <coughs> uh, find ways to navigate around it, and you did. Now, uh, Leno, the, the comedian, he... Jay Leno? Jay Leno, he's dyslexic, and yet <coughs> he can deliver some, you know, a whole a whole bunch of lines and make jokes and so forth. Because you have to train yourself to remember a lot of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And so, <coughs> and I believe Albert Einstein was also dyslexic. Mm -hmm. So, s and it, it turns out... I think Eisenhower was too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and that involves the, is it the left brain? I don't know. I don't There's degrees of dyslexia too. Some is more severe than others. Mm -hmm. Mine is not severe. My but older brother, John, who was a classmate of Alice Kent and, and, and Wayne Lake, mm. very dyslexic. They almost kept him back a year in high school because of it. Mm. I can remember my, my mother sitting at the dining room table when he was in high school, 
and saying, John, why can't you understand mm -hmm. this? But what I <coughs> wanted to say was that um, so many dyslexi people who have dyslexia are very good scientists and mechanics and so forth, and I think that's the left brain. And oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the left brain, <laughs> I'm the right brain. <laughs> I deal with words yeah. and English and language yeah, and yeah. literature and drama and creativity and art and all that. Um, and it's interesting because my son, Eric Olson, is a film producer and he got my right brain. And by the way, he produced The Dirt for Netflix, <laughs> for those of you who want to <laughs> watch it. And my daughter, she got my husband, former husband who has a doctorate in microbiology, the left brain, and she elected to take physics in high school. From my perspective, who does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she, she um, but then she must have my right brain too. She's, got, she's a combo because she uh, has her MBA in marketing and, and did oh, wow. public relations undergrad, mm. so. But it's so fascinating. Music was my Miss Canaan. Do you remember Miss Canaan? Oh, I? sure. When I went in, she had everybody in the class go up front and sing the scale. <laughs> All my other teachers had me sit down front because I was acting up. Miss Canaan says, Ed, sit in back and don't make a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> Did she ever say, Ed? Just mouth it? <laughs> no, but she <laughs> told me not to try to sing too loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So uh, any other comments you have to make? I, I know you spoke to Dave uh, Jacobson, who's married to Pat, and uh, they have owned the house since 1970, the Canary Cottage since 1973, and they must have s some interesting information that, they, that uh, Dave shared with you. Well, it was kind of funny because I was starting to look into the Canary House and I'm with Frank Menino and I said, what number was that? He says, I don't know. So I drove from the museum down Pond Street to go by the house that Fred Ames owns that was the Olympic Lollard House. And was it? Yes. Oh, okay. There's a plaque on the wall. <coughs> I know, 1794. Olympic Lollard number three. Okay. But he wasn't the third of the first and second. He was the son of a Henry Leonard from Bridgewater, mm -hmm. but they picked up the name of Luffler. Mm -hmm. But anyway, here are these two guys in the backyard. One was Fred building a shed, and the other was Dave Jacobson supervising. Mm -hmm. I, I went by and saw both of them also doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so I got out and I walked <coughs> back to ask, you know, uh, what they knew about this. And I said, I'm headed down to the Canary House. And Fred says, I own it. Well, that house was owned from the 1803 or whatever up until 1973. Uh, 73. <clears throat> and then John S. Ames II or third or whatever sold it to Dave Jacobson. Mm. And he has it today. Mm. And here I am talking to Dave. I said, I'm headed down to your house now to, <laughs> <laughs> to look at it. <laughs> did, did you get a chance to go inside? No, no. Oh, well, you should certainly call them and ask I them. I'm wanna, sure they'd be I want to sit down with Fred <clears throat> sometime for an hour because mm -hmm. there's so much that he knows, I'm sure, that I would like to understand. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but uh, Dave said to me, 
and I quote, that's not the one, was it? Dave Jacobson told me he bought the Canary House from Jonas Ames. He lives there today. The house was always owned by the Ameses. The house was built 1823, plus or minus. It says 1800 on the document. So nobody's really sure. <coughs> the dam at Stones Pond was a busy place in 1723 before Easton was incorporated and there was no Main Street. I gotta believe that that house is older than that. I'd like to and know. And so the entire area, uh, Main Street and all the streets, Seaver, Reynolds, Pond, it was all just trees. It was just woods, yeah. Woods, yeah. It was, it was yeah. nature. <laughs> well, isn't it wonderful uh, that y your family uh, was so much a part of early Easton, yeah. the Leonards, and that you must have an incredible family tree because they produce so many children yep. and they produce so many children and so forth. One of the stories, I have mm -hmm. a book. It's entitled Two Men from Taunton. Mm -hmm. If you go into the center of Taunton, just off the common, there's a bronze monument of Robert Treat Payne, the signer of the Declaration yes. of Independence. Mm -hmm. Robert Treat Payne and a fellow by the name of Dan Leonard lived next door to each other on the common and rode in a carriage to the state legislature. They were both in the state legislature during the colonial period, the 1700s. Hmm. Robert Treat Payne was a Whig. Dan Leonard was a Tory. And uh, they both Harvard graduates. The, the Sons of Liberty fired guns into the house of Dan Leonard on the common. And one of the shutters on, is on display at the old Colony Historical Society, bullet holes in it. He, in the middle of the night, took his wife and kids into Boston, 1774, to live in Boston because he would have been killed unless he changed his ways and became a Whig. Mm -hmm. They wrote a book, Two Men from Taunton, and they chronicled their lives, one paragraph about Dan, and one, yeah, and one chapter about Dan, one chapter about Robert Treat, another chapter about Dan. <coughs> and there was some letters that went back and forth between a, um, an unknown author and, and John Adams called Massachusetts, and it's, I don't know, I can't even pronounce it, but in the newspaper they were back and forth. And this unknown author who happened to be Dan Leonard was defending the fact that there's no way that these colonial people could defend themselves against the massive armies and navy of the British. And he said, you know, you're not gonna win a war fighting them, so you might as well join them. Mm. But that didn't happen. And then you had the evacuation day. On evacuation day, Dan Leonard and his family were put on a boat and they went to Halifax Harbor. And then he left his family there and he himself went to London because he was appointed by the king and he was looking for some favors from the king and it took him a year or two. But finally he was appointed to Bermuda and was the chief magistrate 
of Bermuda for about 25 years. Then he went back to London, and he was in his later years, and he committed suicide. He no. put a gun to his head and killed himself. Oh, my. Your ancestor. My ancestor, Dan <laughs> Leonard, yeah. And but he was actually <coughs> descended. I mean, uh, the record, he was descended from the original founders. Right. So he, but he, uh, he was the magistrate, so he was the judge. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And he was he a went, lawyer. And he went to Harvard. Did you know something about Harvard? When you read that book, it tells you you were graded not because of your scholastic abilities, but because of your wealth. The one that graduated at the top of their class was the wealthiest. The one that graduated from the bottom of their class was the poorest. So where was Dan Leonard? Somewhere in the middle. Mm. And John Adams, he was below that because John Adams was a farmer. Mm. He, but his father got him into Harvard. Mm. But he was not a wealthy. But they owned quite a bit of land in Quincy. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was interesting. Very that Harvard. Interesting. <laughs> 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 it's, history it's, is interesting. You know, I think you should start thinking about having a Leonard reunion. <laughs> well, they have been the Leonard reunions. Oh, that's another Leonard that I have. You know Habitat for Humanity? Yes. Mylod Fuller was the founder of it. Yes. And then he had a little problem at the end because he was accused of inappropriate action with his, one of his secretaries. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And they let him go. Paul Leonard, my second cousin, was a minister. He ended up being brought into the housing industry of a developer, and he did very well. And that business was, that, that was Crosland. They were bought out by a Texas outfit that was making like 12,000 houses a year. And he managed that. And today he's still on the board of directors of that. But when he did it, he got involved with Habitat for Humanity. And his companies had a hardware store, and they would provide all kinds of free materials for building habitat houses. And then he became the manager of international habitat. And when he retired, Jimmy Carter came to him because of the problems they were having with Mylod Fuller and asked him if he would take over habitat and he was in retirement. He went down to America's Georgia and ran Habitat for two years until they could find another replacement. My goodness. Paul Leonard. Paul Leonard. <laughs> Lots of Leonard stories. Yeah. And yes. we've just uh, you know, seen the tip of the iceberg, as they say. Yeah. Right? So, so I, I'm so excited about my family, but yes. I'm glad you'd, I got somebody to tell the story to. Yes, and it's fascinating. I love these stories. Yeah. And you should be so proud of your family. I had nothing to do with no. it. No, <laughs> but the fact that they lived and um, had children and they had children, is the is, and you are the result. You know what bothers me more than anything? When I took history in high school, it was the dullest subject in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't appreciate it. If my history teacher in high school had told the story of the Ameses, the shovel works, building the transcontinental railroad, mm -hmm. uh, all the things that we've talked about here, 
they could have made that such a live story and made, well, made us understand history. Right, you and I graduated Olive Rames too early because in subsequent years, um, Hazel, Hazel Luke Varela yep. 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 developed as, as the history teacher at the high school and chairman of the department, she developed the uh, history course that all students were required to take. And so they all graduated Olive Rames with a real appreciation of the richness of, of the history. I never thought about that. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Because yeah. that's what I think should happen. Right. And um, and and so they, I believe they also were required to do a, a project, at, uh, you know, write a paper and, and whatever. Look, look into certain things, yeah. yeah. Right. So anyway, thank you, Ed, so much. <laughs> and I, I know that we're going to have Ed back because <laughs> This man is filled with stories oh. about the Leonard dynasty. <laughs> and I, I, I hate to come across as a braggart, you know, on it, but yet I, it's history, and I, yes, I and think it's important to be re and, and as you're discovering the history of your family, you're seeing, uh, you too find new information, which is very illuminating and, uh, and quite fascinating. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you sit at a counter next to somebody at a, in a store and you start talking to them, it happened to me this morning. I was over at um, Ocean Honda in Brockton. I had my breakfast there. They have a, uh, a full-fledged diner in the showroom of the Honda dealership. Did you know that? No. You can go in there, sit at a counter, or sit at a booth with a jukebox and order your breakfast. At the Honda dealership? Right in the showroom of the Honda dealership. Where it, is that located? It was McGovern. Before that, it was Bernardi. Okay, but what's the address? I don't know the address. It's, it's on uh, Manley Street. Uh-huh. But if you're on Route 24 and look off to your right, you see a Hyundai dealer and a Honda dealer. So if it's on Manley, so if you go down Route 106, take a left on Manley, you'll find it? Yeah. Okay. You know the VA hospital? Sure. It's right next to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're so going I'm on sitting 123. There I'm sitting there ne talking to a fellow this morning, and he's wearing hearing aids. And I've just got my new hearing aids. So I want to talk. And I say, do you enjoy your hearing aids? He says, I hate the damn things. He says, <laughs> oh, well, we got talking to him. He was related to Clemmy Splane. Do you know the Splains? Sure. He, he was related to, his wife is related to the Splains. He knew the Craigs. Uh, he knew a lot about Easton's history. And if you just start talking to people and carry on, a, you learn stuff. You do, right. And I've had so many, I can tell you a bunch of stories about circumstances that I have had. And a lot of fun. That's how I met Paul Leonard, just because I took the initiative to, to go and meet him. Mm. It's, One, it's wonderful. We thank you, Ed. Well, thank you. And once again, the, uh, the Community Forum has produced a fascinating and interesting story about Easton's past history, which probably most of you sitting at home listening to this and watching this had no idea. I certainly am one of those. Mm. So I thank you again. Appreciate all the knowledge and research that you've done <laughs> and added another page to Easton's history. Thank you so much for watching. <laughs> Until next time, this is Priscilla Almquist Olson wishing you all the very best. Mm -hmm.